Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of June, 2023, and this is episode 303. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Dr Jane Flynn about her research into the Army Remount Service and the Army Veterinary Corps during the First World War. Jane spoke to me from her home in Derbyshire. Jane, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. May you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War. Right. Um, Right. So my name is uh, Jane Flynn, Dr. Jane Flynn. Um, I live in Belper in Derbyshire. Um, I completed my PhD in 2016. Um, It was done part of it at Sheffield University, part of it at Derby. And um, how did I get interested? You know, I've been thinking about this question ever since you sort of you suggested it. I've been racking my brains trying to think when I got interested in the Great War, because I can't remember when I haven't been. Um, I was always interested in war, even from quite a young age. I think I kind of inherited it from my dad. Um, My dad had been in the Royal Navy and I was sort of brought up on an endless sort of stream of of kind of war war movies and things. And I think it was kind of... um, uh, I know a kind of, I, I think an important moment was, we you know how in English lessons you used to have a kind of a book box at secondary school where you could take a book out for kind of private reading and they had a copy of All Question, All Quiet on the Western Front and I can remember being so absolutely besotted with it. I, it was, I think that was kind of quite an important moment. But yeah, honestly, I can't remember when I haven't been. I think I've always been fascinated by it. It's I've always been fascinated by that sort of end of the 20th, beginning, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and that whole Victorian, Edwardian, First World War, post-war, that whole period of history has always just fascinated me for a really, really long time. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's just, yeah. It's always just captured my imagination. I know because um, I didn't start off as a historian. I started off as an English literature person at Leeds. And I remember we did a course on sort of early 20th century literature. And I absolutely adored that. It was just absolutely my thing. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I kind of I think I like it because the literature is kind of modern Um the language is, is 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 comprehensible, which made a nice change from kind of medieval literature and endless, endless, endless Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> so it was quite refreshing to read something that, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, don't worry. I, I never did Shakespeare because I was too thick. I was in the CSE class and they wouldn't trust English literature on the thickos. So oh. um, and that's yeah, so it's, it's one of my my set texts from my literature exam was the life of Brian. But that is another matter. <laughs> and I still scraped a grade three, which for modern listeners is a GCSE equivalent of an F, I think. So it wasn't my my shining example of genius. Oh, it could be an E. But anyway. Yeah, but th- anyway, those were the days. Those were the days. You're too thick to do Shakespeare. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. Um, I know, so I, but I wasn't to... too thick to do the First World War. Thank God. Yeah, you know, I used to be. Um, yeah, you know, I used to be an English teacher, and I mean, I started teaching in um, about two thousand. I started at my first school, and I mean, there was no, there was no way you wouldn't have. T- the whole school did Shakespeare in some shape or form, even if, even if they only did maybe, I don't know, um, a famous speech, you know. Everybody did some. <laughs> no, we 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 were we were we were going to be part of the the landfill in 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 the glorious eighties. So the human landfill. But I I don't. 
So Jane, let's get back to the subject. Now, we're going to talk about the remount service and the Army Veterinary Corps during the Great War. Can you tell me about these organisations, how they are interlinked and when and why they were set up? Right. OK, that's quite a big question. There's quite a lot there. <laughs> um, right. So it's it's uh, the remount service is the sort of the that of the two is the one that sort of existed first. Um, so the remount service came into being in the late 19th century. Um, previously, the purchase and supply of horses had been, been um, organised by regiments individually. So they they managed their own their own horse supply and, and that was all done within the regiment. As you can imagine, this meant that every regiment was slightly different and and so on. So it was decided to bring it all together um, in this one service. Um, the Veterinary Corps um, struggled for many years to kind of wrest autonomy from the remount um, service. It had previously, again, all um existed there would always there'd been veterinarians but they'd been a part of the the regiment's individual organizations and that was fine in some ways but it meant that the veterinarians didn't have kind of autonomy they couldn't just decide something uh because it was their their professional um you know uh, decision they thought this was the best thing to do they were always very much at the mercy of what the regiment wanted them to do um, so in both cases it wasn't sort of ideal um, the veterinary service so I say the veterinary service struggled um, to to kind of um, achieve that autonomy for quite a long time um, it was recognised that you know the the veterinary welfare of horses and, and army animals did need to be taken more seriously um but I, but if you if you read i think um i mean the best source is um sir frederick swift's smith's history of the royal army veterinary corps although you do have to treat him with a bit of caution because he's definitely got an agenda um <laughs> he's 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 uh, he's quite he's quite scathing at times of uh, of the war office and and various things um so um, I think a lot of this, the, the problems that there were with the system as it as it was, were highlighted in the Boer War, in the Second Boer War. Um, there were all sorts of problems. Um, the remount service was far too small to be able to handle the, you know, the the sheer and the number of horses they needed to purchase and supply. And of course they're having to send them all overseas. They've got to get them all to South Africa. And um, it just highlighted all of the problems that there were with the current system. Um, and during all this, the army veterinary corps was still under the, the remount department. So um, which was very frustrating um, for the for the army veterinary service as it was um, as Sir Frederick Smith tells us he says there couldn't have been a better service system for making sure that everything went as wrong as as could possibly have have gone wrong um, so they were you know they'd got horses that were you know potentially carrying disease housed with horses that were newly arrived from you know and the, all of these horses were all mixed up and there was no system so of course um, any sort of infectious disease or anything just went through the whole horse population at 100 miles per hour and it was not not ideal um anyway so following the whole debacle of the Boer war the veterinary service finally managed to become the army veterinary corps in 1903 um which was brilliant because it finally managed to separate itself from remounts and from the regiments as well so it now was its own its own separate service, um, very much akin to it went through a sort of similar process. And the, the thinking behind it, I think, was also very similar to that of the Army Medical Corps. So the idea that you centralise it, but then you also have officers attached to regiments who are there to advise, to deal with, um, you know, to deal with emergencies and so on, you know, there and then. 
so to keep an eye on things and to you know to look after the men but the veterinary corps case to look after the horses and to advise educate um you know just sort of keep an eye on things um so that's the kind of the situation you sort of find yourself in in 1914 um you've got the two separate um but we're very much working together so you've got the remount service are the providers and the suppliers though they they provide the horses they they purchase them they transport them they distribute them um and then the Army Veterinary Court are kind of the the menders and disposers. So <laughs> they have the uh, the um, thankless task of dealing with what you do with these horses at the end of their of their useful lives, unfortunately. But they they also have have the important role of it's kind of a three part, part sort of um, purpose, really. Um Education, as I mentioned, is part of it. So training, educating, getting after people and saying, no, that's not, you know, having somebody there to sort of um, keep an eye on things from the horses, you know, with a purely, you know, I know the regiment might well be doing this, but my interest is in is in the in, in the animals. So I think that enabled them to because because they were officers in their own right, but they weren't they had their own um uh what's the word um they were given a certain amount of freedom i suppose from from you know from the regiment's interests and the army veterinary corps interests so i think that was that was seemed to work very well um also part of their job was to um basically deal with small things before they were allowed to become big problems so if they if they spotted a small problem with an animal that could be easily rectified, they'd be the ones who'd say, right, the horse needs to go needs to go back to the um, veterinary hospital. We'll sort it out, and then hopefully that horse will be able to return to active service fairly promptly. Um, that also, of course, freed the regiments up and meant that they weren't having to deal with injured, sick animals when they were in the field. That freed them up. Um, so the animals were getting better treatment, but it also made it better for the regiments as well, because that was something they'd found in the Boer War, that they just couldn't cope with with all of these injured, sick, exhausted horses, and they were just leaving them behind. Apparently, everywhere they went, there was just this, like, horses just left in their wake that they just didn't know what to do with. Um, so, um, and of course, then, yeah, and very important is training and education um that's another important part of the veterinary's role so uh, i don't know whether that's answered the question it was a big question <laughs> it, it was a huge question and a number of actually of, of sub questions have, have, have occurred to me which i probably should have asked you from the beginning about what type of horses were there in the military what, what were they uh, and what were they used for because i've seen war horse but that's probably not a great introduction <laughs> into the use of of horses by the british army before the war or during the, the great war yeah, um, I'm not going to get into all the various categories because there are a whole load of categories. Um, I mean, an example would be um, you've got. Hang on a minute, I've got the I've got the info here. Um, right, so you've got um, an officer's charger is classified as X. A ca- the cavalry um, have a riding horse, which is obviously like your trooper's horse which will be classed as A. So that's more of a, a riding horse that's possibly a little bit more of a weight carrier. So you're thinking something a little bit more like um, a heavyweight hunter type of horse, but not too big, preferably. The army didn't like enormous horses, partly just because they're difficult to get on and off. I mean, I, I know this from personal experience. I, I at one point was riding a horse that... Uh, a, massive great big um dressage horse who was well over 18 hands he was a lovely lad but i've only got little legs um and it was a very long way i spent a lot of time on steps even just tacking him up i needed to get a pair of steps out so i could get my saddle and everything on and and just say getting on and off 
if you'd been out on a hack and had to get off, you'd I'd have never I'd have never got back on again. So there are a lot. There's a lot to be said for a slightly smaller horse. Um, not least they they eat less as well. Um, the army would have liked that. Um, uh, so you've then got the horse artillery, and they prefer a light draft type horse. Um, so that would be classed as Z and Z and D. They're by far the most used in the First World War because they're very versatile. You can use that sort of type of horse for all sorts of purposes. They're light enough that you can ride them. They'll still probably have a turn of speed, um, but they're also weight carriers. They're, they're pullers. They're, they're quite strong. Um, do, do, do. And as time goes on, they're increasingly replaced by mules um, because it was found that because you think of a mule, I think you often mistakenly think of a quite a small animal because obviously a mule's a cross between a horse and a donkey. But the, some of the mules are actually quite big. I mean, they're well up into sort of 16 hands sort of size. So they're, they're, they're quite actually quite big. And it was found that they stood up far better to the hard conditions, especially on the Western Front, that they they just seemed much tougher than the horses were. Um, the, the soldiers found them quite challenging at times because a mule is quite a different character from a horse. Um, they don't suffer fools in the way that horses do. Um, so I think sometimes when you've got a soldier who was maybe not the most experienced horseman, um, and then he was given a couple of mules to look after. The mules definitely knew how to uh, identify and take advantage of his weaknesses. Um, <laughs> so some of the say so some of the soldiers do. They they talk about the mules with respect. I think more than anything, often a lot of affection as well, though, because I think once they'd sort of once you'd earned the mules' trust and respect, it would do anything for you. Um, so I think a lot of the soldiers actually became very, um, very fond of the mules in the end. Although once one officer said um, that they were most frightful people, <laughs> which I thought was 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 wonderful. <laughs> um, Say, so, and then of course you've got your um, you've got your heavy drafts. So they're what you would think of as your brewery horse, your farm horse. They're your big sort of shires, Clydesdales, Suffolks. Um, and they're classed as F. Um, and then, of course, you've got all your other animals as well. I mean, you've got your camels, your elephants, your ponies, donkeys, all sorts. So, <laughs> but that's just the horses. <laughs> so, so what? I'm just wondering what type, what sort of numbers of horses would the British Army get through, say, in an average year? I'm partly thinking of the BEF in England uh, or units based in England. How many horses would they um, have on their establishment? Um, what do you mean in peacetime? Yes, I'm just sort of thinking just mm. so we get peace on them and then war, because it, it, it sort of strikes me that, you know, every officer would have a horse and, you know, it takes six horses maybe to pull some of these guns. Plus, you've got all the, you know, transportation is predominantly by horse. Obviously, rail plays a part. But I was just thinking about numbers and what sort of scale we're talking about. Um, right. Um, this is actually quite a difficult question to answer because numbers on the strength and numbers supplied um always it's it's never kind of um it's always sort of fluctuating so if you look at any sort of um table of how many horses they've got at any one time um it's actually quite difficult to pin down so if this will probably give you a better idea um so when prior to um Britain declaring war in 1914, the army had 19,000 horses on its strength. Um, but it says by August the following year, that had increased to 540,000. So, and of course, that doesn't include all of the horses that have had to be supplied to keep the strength up, to, to increase the strength to 540,000. So you've got that whole Mons and Marne, um, that the whole, you know, that was there was a lot of horse wastage at that point. Um, yeah, so so I think that gives you an idea anyway. Um, I say I have got some other some other numbers from sort of towards the end of the war 
um, when, as you might imagine, the numbers are rapidly <laughs> rapidly falling um, for various reasons. And um, that might be something we'll come back to later. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Well, let, well yes. Let's, let's get into the war. So what? how does the war affect the uh, remount service and the veteran corps? What sort of um, impact does it have on the organisational structure and, I suppose, scale of the organisation? Right, yes. Um, well, as you might imagine, I mean, both both services just expand unbelievably. Um, I mean, in the First World War, from, from from sorry, in the Boer War, from what I can gather, I mean, the re- remount department was pretty much just a sort of a little tiny office at the war down at the war office and then they just sort of say oh and they just get a whole load of kind of retired army people and um, knowledgeable amateurs to go out and buy them some horses it was all a bit sort of ad hoc I think um but obviously in the first world war that's not the <laughs> not 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 the same not not quite the same um so um to give you sort of an idea um I think the remount service was mainly focused at Melton Mowbray and Aldershot. Um, in the First World War, um, that increased, as you can imagine. Um, you end up with a number of remount um, uh, depots. Um, I mean, in the, this is in the UK. Um, one of the ones that I researched was, the, uh, was Romsey near Southampton. Um, which obvious for obvious reasons you want to remount depot next to the docks. Um, <laughs> it makes you know it where 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 you've got you know where where you've got the docks. So it may makes total sense. Um, and also collecting points would be they'd be local collecting points for horses as well. Um, the same in in within the UK. Um, so yeah, the remount service grew. Um, <laughs> grew very rapidly um to give you an idea about the army veterinary corps um i've got some say i've got some some information here the um the expedition when the expeditionary force landed in august 1914 they had the army veteran army veterinary corps comprised six veterinary hospitals each for 250 patients 11 mobile veterinary sections, two base depots of veterinary stores, and its personnel numbered 122 officers and 797 other ranks, which once you you sort of spread them across six veterinary hospitals doesn't actually sound, you know, excessive. Um, However, um, three years later, it then employed 765 officers and 16,446 other ranks. Um, and by this point, it had 18 veterinary hospitals, four convalescent horse depots, and accommodation for 39,800 sick animals. It had 17 veterinary evacuating stations, 66 mobile veterinary sections, five depots of veterinary stores, one bacteriological laboratory, which was largely used for um, malane testing for glanders and seven horse carcass economy. We'll, the, uh, we'll, we'll come to that maybe later. <laughs> that's um, that's for the, that's the disposal part of, of their job. And in addition, overseas and Dominion government supplied two veterinary hospitals, two veterinary evacuating stations and 11 mobile veterinary sections. So it's... Yeah, it's it's not a small, not not a small enterprise. So, what um what challenges did they have in in actually setting up this organisation, and where did they get the horses from? Right. Um. Well, the horses initially were purchased in the UK within the United Kingdom, and also obviously supplied from Britain's empire, so India, um. And with the Australian Expeditionary Force, the Canadian Expeditionary Force, they all brought their own horse as well. Um, so, yeah, the initially um, the remounts um, head out or remount purchases head out across the UK um, to purchase horses 
uh, you know, at home. Um, but of course, that's not a, an exhaustible supply of horses. There's only so many you can buy um, without sort of bringing the country to its knees. Um, so the remount um, purchases um, were accompanied with a lot of instructions how and how not to behave. Um, as you can imagine, you might get somebody who was a little overzealous and possibly a bit carried away with the importance of the situation and they could make themselves extremely unhappy and popular if they started stomping about all over somebody's yard, yard and um, where they weren't invited. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they were explicitly advised to act with tact and diplomacy at all times. Um, they were um, supplied with um, a sort of a checkbook so that they could they could pay for horses. They were they were supplied with the branding iron so that they could um, they could literally say, yes, we bought this this horse now. This is ours because otherwise there were there was a story about um, they were buying horses in Ireland. And um, apparently what was happening was these horses were being led past the the purchases and of course they were looking at them and going oh yeah that's a, that's a nice horse yeah we'll have that one the horse would be led away all the forms would be signed then that horse would vanish and then it would appear again um so they were actually buying the same horse again and again so they eventually realized that what they've got to do was they've got to brand them like there and then so that they could that couldn't happen you know like we, we've paid now this is our property um so uh yeah the the, the compul compulsory purchase i don't was um i think they handled it on the whole quite well um you do sit here various sort of horror stories um i think you know obviously some you can imagine there were a lot of people who felt quite aggrieved by it if they felt that they maybe they'd been unfairly treated the remount department weren't supposed to do that um they weren't it was it was expressly um um it was they they were told quite quite plainly that you weren't to kind of target a particular yard you know you'd got to be you got to be fair about it and also you couldn't buy so many horses from somebody that you then meant it meant they couldn't go about their business anymore so say for example a farmer you could buy several of his horses but you must leave him with enough horses to be able to carry on farming to carry on doing his job and the same went for tradespeople. if they've got one horse that they used for making deliveries you couldn't buy that horse you know because you were you were that would just you know that was their livelihood gone um so you know you had there had to be it had to be treated with a certain degree of you know common sense and discretion um obviously a lot of people um voluntarily um brought horse you know sort of um they wanted to support the war effort so they they were you know they were they saw it as their their you know patriotic duty to 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 um supply horses for the army um prior to this point i mean they there had been a there had been a horse census so they did have some idea where they were going to get the different types of horses that they needed so they knew which areas of the country would say for example be better um a better place to go for heavy heavy drafts um or they knew that um, you know, in another area that that was where they were going to get they were going to get good horses for the cavalry. They were going to get good tro troopers, horses and, and officers mounts. So say, for example, you think of somewhere like Melton Mowbray, um, you know, and Hunt, Hunt District, very, you know, very famous hunting area, um, Hunt Country, rather. Um, that was where you were going to get your hunters. Um, this area uh, around the Midlands, quite famous for producing very good quality heavy draft um, although the Derbyshire Yeomanry said that when they first mobilised apparently it was um, he said um, he, he thought the people of I think it was Ashbourne or Chesterfield because obviously they were all they were all gathering together and as they came down through Derbyshire you know and they were getting everything it was all excited because you know it's like we're mobilising and 
Um, he said everybody was very nice about it. Whenever they went through the towns, everybody was cheering and everybody was very, very nice about it. But he said some of our horses were absolutely shocking. Um, he says he thinks they had some that were still blinking because they'd only just come out the pit and they'd not seen daylight for, <laughs> for years. <laughs> So um they weren't the horses that they, they they didn't they 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 weren't the horses that they sort of kept. They were just the ones that they had to begin with. It was just a kind of what they'd managed to cobble together to kind of <laughs> to, to start with. Um so yes, yeah, sorry, I've gone off on a tangent again, haven't I? No, don't worry. I was <laughs> I was wondering on that sort of, you know, what was the sort of average lifespan of a, I, I suppose, a horse? Obviously, that depended where and when they and what they were doing. But say, what would be the, the average, I suppose, lifespan of a, a, a horse in the Royal Artillery? Um, under normal circumstances, um, I mean, a horse can, you know, live quite happily into its sort of teen, teens. Um during the First World War, not not as long, because um, they obviously the artillery were working very hard, um, and it took a lot out of the horses because um, it's you know it's it's quite in when they are working, it's quite intense, quite hard, uh, fast work. Um, it varies a lot from one type of horse to another, and it varies a lot from what jobs they're doing so for example in civilian life they used to reckon that um a cab horse so back in the day of what days of horse-drawn cabs they probably wouldn't last more than three years they'd be lucky to you know they'd be lucky to last three years um similar with omnibus horses um because they said it 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 was the stopping and the starting so that kind of that the initial effort to get the bus moving each time and having to do that again and again and again really took it out, out of them. So you imagine that sort of transferred possibly to artillery and you see how that sort of work really, you know, really takes it out of, out of the horses. Um, so under ideal situ under ideal circumstances, horses can live for a very, very long time. Um, but um, say in, in the field, um it was sort of inevitable that they were going to decline um that their, their health would deteriorate um there were some horses some kind of you know as you always do um a bit like you get your kind of 85 year old um woman who says oh yeah i've smoked 60 a day for the last you know 75 years and i'm fine you know you always get somebody like that don't you and you i think you get the of the horse that was a bit of a kind of a uh, you know was just remarkable you know there were some horses that had been there from the outset they'd already been in the arm they you know they were they were already army horses before the war began and they were still going at the end so there was the you know there was the odd one like that who for whatever reason had some sort of charmed life and managed to avoid um you know every bomb every shell <laughs> every every possible way of injuring itself or of making itself ill and somehow came out the other end still in one piece um but the majority of horses um it was kind of it didn't matter this was actually quite heartbreaking for the soldiers because no matter how much hard work they put into looking after the horses which a lot of them did they were only really slowing this deterioration in the horses health so living out out in conditions that weren't often quite exposed, not ideal, um, not always maybe getting quite the right type or quantity of feed that particular horse needed under ideal circumstances, um, working very hard. Um, eventually, they would just start to deteriorate, that their health would deteriorate and debility and exhaustion were by far really the the greatest source of horse wastage you know far far more than injuries um so yes yeah, so that's the sad the sad part of it um but again this is where the mules were amazing because the mules were far more resistant far more resilient they seemed to be able to cope with the conditions better they didn't have the pro same get the same sort of foot and, and leg problems that the horses did say on the western front you know with all with mud um constantly wet 
you know, wet conditions, um, kind of the horse equivalent of trench foot, I suppose, if you think of it in that, in that way. Um, the mules just seem to cope much better with all of that. Um, they seem to be able to deal with, you know, maybe not quite having quite as much feed as, as they ought to be having. They seem to be able to kind of withstand it. They were just very tough, I think. Um, some horses, some types of horses, I think probably struggled, struggled more than others. Um, I mean, you think of a heavy draft horse, great big horse, so it's going to be strong. Um, but that wasn't always the case. They suffered much more with problems with their feet. And obviously they need a lot more feed to keep keep condition. So sort of contrary to what you would you would think, big, strong horse, they they actually often went down in in um, uh, that their health deteriorated much faster than some of the smaller draft type horses. Sorry, again, it's, it's one of those questions that is sort of a bit you can't sort of definitively say they lasted this long because each horse is sort of um, e- each horse is a sort of an individual. Each unit's may be slightly different in one unit. They're doing something possibly slightly different to another. Um, it depends a lot on the work that they're doing as well. Um, so, I mean, this is where remounts would come in because, say, for example, a horse that was no longer of any good for artillery work might still be okay for the service corps, or it might be able to go and work at the veterinary depot and just move stuff around. So, you know, they, they didn't just say, oh, you're no good for that job anymore. That's it. Um, you know, common sense would would dictate that you find another job for them that they're that they're capable of doing so what happens to all these horses at the end of the war now i, I read in the war diary of one of my my grandfather's infantry units that some of these horses are destroyed quotes to prevent them from falling into the hands of the belgians which suggests there was a fate worse than death even if the belgians got them and i always always wondered why the belgians would be would be worse than actually death yeah um he's kind of He's sort of on the he's sort of on the right lines, and I can see how. Um, I think that I, I've I've certainly heard veterans veterans saying that about um, Italy. Um, apparently, they were they were initially all very um, very upset because they said that the horses were going to be destroyed, and then they realised that this meant that they were going to be destroyed rather than being sold to the local population who. The, he personally, but I think he was reflecting the opinion of many others, felt was they, they didn't have a high opinion of the um, Italians' horse husbandry skills, put it that way. So they he, he said that they were, was it, they were cruel. He didn't think that they were nice. They were not good to their horses. So I think they were quite, they, they saw it as being maybe a mercy that the horses were going to be destroyed rather than sold. Um, but as with anything, it's a little bit slightly more complicated than it's usually. <laughs> you, the, you know how how the kind of the the myths go. You know, it's always all all of this happened or all of that happened. Um, every soldier horse relationship was just like war horse. You know, of course, and every soldier would have you know would have put himself in in danger to to save his horse. Um, and then, of course, the other extreme is that nobody cared. Um, all the horses just, you know, they didn't care about the horses at all. And and at the end, they killed they killed all of them. You know, they 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 merrily set out to to kill every single horse that could get their hands on, um, which of course again is is not is not true either. Um, I, I got I don't know whether. Um, whether you've seen it but the the recent new adaptation of all creatures great and small got me quite um <laughs> got me quite cross recently because they 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 just said oh the war's over right so we must go out now and kill all the horses <laughs> I was just, no, you're not gonna do that think how much money those things represent you know and all the effort and all works gone into trying to keep them all going over the last four years and then you're just going to run out and just indiscriminately destroy every single one as I said no that's ludicrous um anyway yes so um sorry what was your question I've gone off on a tangent again <laughs> what, what happened to these horses um, right so they, were, they were not all killed as we're led to believe no <laughs> 
Now, um, again, there's a slight variation, the different theatres of the war. Um, but if I focus maybe on France and Belgium as being a particularly good example and, and relevant because it's Western Front Association. Um, first thing that happens is um, the veter veterinary officers are sent out to assess all of the horses and give them a, a categorization. So we've got yet another series of categories. Um, and the horses that they focus on first are category D. Um, so we have four categories, A, between five and eight years and practically sound. So they're your kind of your top. They're the ones that are either going to stay in the army and go back into the army's peacetime strength or are going to be sold in the UK. So they're your kind of your top, you know, they're your, your best ones. B, between 8 and 12, and practically sound. Again, absolutely, you know, good. these are good horses. They're going to go on to live perfectly healthy, active lives, whether it's in the army or in civilian life. Over 12 years or unsound, which is a slightly different um, uh, different thing we're dealing with here by category C. And D, only fit for destruction for food or byproducts. So... As you might imagine, from a um, humane point of view, and also you're thinking about how they're having to demobilise and there's lots of men that can't be demobilised until the horses have gone, they focus on category D first. So they're the horses that are destroyed straight away and they're either sold for meat or they're, sold, or they're destroyed and they're used for byproducts. So um, this is where the carcass economizer plants come in. So um, this is where um, basically these are animals that are their, their, their condition is so bad that you can't even sell them for meat. So they're going to make them into pet food, uh, fertilizers, glue, um, hides for tanning. There's all sorts of products that they're in very much a pre, you know, pre-plastics, pre all of that, you know, all of these animal animal products that we that we that we we manage to avoid these days. Um, so they're they're the sort of they're the they're the ones that are focused on first. Um, then there's a lot of horses sold to the French and Belgian population for work. Um, because obviously they've got to rebuild. They're desperate for, for animals so that they can farm, so that they can put the country back together. Um, there are very, of course, people in the UK are up in arms about this because they there's, there's a certain element of the population that think the only humane way to deal with this is to destroy all of the horses um, to avoid them falling into the wrong hands. Um, but there are lots of sort of... Um, there were lots of little rules, rules and regulations put in place, sort of so such that you know uh, a civilian purchaser can only have buy so many horses, so they can't buy ten when they only need two. Um, so you know there's 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 quite a big lot of control um, put over this. There's then a, a a lot of horses that are still sound enough, um, but are not considered good enough to return to the UK for sale. They don't think they're going to keep in the army permanently. They're the ones that go off to uh, off to Germany for the Army of the Rhine. So they're the, they're, they stay in the army, but they go off to Germany, um, which I always think is a bit the harshest in a way, because these were the ones that were a bit marginal. These are these over 12, sort of over 12, a bit... Um, They've still got a bit more work left in them, but not a lot. So they're the ones that get ridden over to Germany and then probably got made, get made into sausages in Germany. So you know, it's, it's always a bit harsh. I always feel that that's a bit the, the kind of the, they they had a bit the worst deal in a way because the army just got that last little bit of work out of them and knowing that they, they weren't going to come back again. Um, and then, of course, the better horses, the best ones, um, once they've made sure that they're not going to introduce any sort of disease into the UK population, 
they're the horses that they start bringing back to the UK for sale. Um, and the, there are these horse dispersal sales in the UK that are everybody's absolutely mad for these sales. Apparently, they were, the horses are, are achieving amazing prices because by this point, everyone's desperate for horses. Um, you know, you've got a farmer who, say, had, I don't know, um, five, maybe five or six of all horses at the beginning of the war. Several of his horses were taken by remounts in 1914. Um, he wasn't by any means left with no horses, but he was left with the horses that maybe were the older ones um, that still had plenty of work in them. But four years on, those horses are probably possibly beginning to reach the end of their working lives. So they're desperate for for new new horses. Everybody's desperate for horses. Um, so, so yeah, these horses are achieving amazing prices. And at one point they actually have to sort of slightly slow down the process because they're worried that they're just going to flood the market and then they're not going to be able to get those the so same prices that they've been that they've been getting for these horses. Um and there's there's sort of various things that they, they do. Um they for example, if you buy a horse, you get a kind of a coupon which enables you to buy so much feed for that horse after you, uh, you you're entitled to a kind of a ration for the horse that you've just bought. So there's a sort of a kind of a sense of a kind of a duty of care. We know we're handing this horse over, but we want to make sure that it's going to get a good start in its in its new home. Um, so that that's that's quite positive. Um now, one, so one thing I often get asked is kind of, well, did, were the soldiers able to buy their horses? And again, that goes back to the kind of the war horse thing, you know, where at the end all the soldiers club together so they can buy Joey back for, uh, I've forgotten his name, the, the 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 hero of the story so that he can buy his horse back at the end. Um, there's sort of some evidence of that, that kind of happening, actually. Um Officers were given the option to buy their horses, but only if they could prove that they'd got the means to look after them. Um, so say, for example, if they'd got, they knew somebody who would look after the horse for them, but so they, they could prove they'd got somewhere where the horse could live and they'd got the means to look after it, then the army would be okay for them to buy the horse. Um for the other ranks, they too could buy the horses, but they had to go to the auction to buy them. Um, so they had to work out which auction their horse was going to be being sold at and then get themselves down there to buy it. And bearing in mind that these horses were achieving quite good good prices, I think they would have been out of the pocket of, you know, most of your average, average soldiers. Um, and of course... Unless you were fortunate and maybe you, you lived on a farm or you had somewhere where you were going to be able to keep it, it wouldn't have been a practical proposition for the majority of of, um, of soldiers. So I think they I think a lot of the time they just accepted that, you know, that they were going to go to a new home and hopefully it to be it to be a good one. I think they just had to sort of just, um, you know, just just I suppose detach themselves from it maybe um but it's say in some cases they did uh, there was a horse called songster in the leicestershire yeomanry and they clubbed together and bought him at the end of the war and he went to live with um harry pool for the rest of his life and he was kind of he was almost like the sort of the the, the one horse they bought to be their sort of representative of of all the others um and he, he was he was sort of very you got the feeling he was very much loved, um, not just by the yeomanry, but by the people in the local area. Um, if there was any sort of event, he, he would always appear. Um, the songster would be there. And uh, and when he died, there were all these, you know, eventually of old age, um, <laughs> many, many, many years later, um, there were all these sort of obituaries to him in the local press and um, so the songster was, as I say, he was one of those horses that I was saying about earlier, one of those kind of remarkable, re remarkable survivors, because he'd gone into the yeomanry right at the start of the war. The, he wasn't really ideal for what they wanted. So I don't know how they ended up buying him. Um, he was a bit small. He wasn't he was actually a little bit on the old side. 
Um, he was a little bit older than they would have liked, but by however he managed it, he managed to survive the war. They said he was as artful as a barrel load of monkeys um, and because he somehow always managed to avoid getting getting wounded or anything happening to him. Um, and, yeah, I say survived the war, came out the other end, um, ended up having a lovely life, um, I think, hunting, um, pulling a milk cart, um, <laughs> doing all sorts of things. And then finally, many, many years later, I mean, this is, he must have been, he must have been well into his 30s by this point. Maybe uh, a good age for any horse, but, you know, let alone one that survived the First World War um, and eventually died of old age. <laughs> so, you know, there, there were some some of these amazing horses that, that did survive. Um, but I think what I love is the way that the local community sort of he, he became like this, sort of like a mascot, almost like a focus um and I think very much for the yeomanry, I think he became their sort of focus. They all focused on him and not all the other horses that haven't come back. And finally, Jane, where can people find out more about your work and the work of the Remounts Army Veterinary Corps? Right. OK, well, this is where I have to plug my book, isn't it? <laughs> Yay! Um, yeah, so um, I've written a book called Soldiers and Their Horses, sentimentality and the soldier horse relationship in the great war um which was published by routledge um and is available from all good booksellers um it's it's now considerably um less expensive than it was when it originally came out because it's now possible to buy it as an ebook a paperback print on demand and it's available on kindle as well so it's a, it's a lot it's a lot less expensive because it was typical you know university sort of academic publishers when it came out and it was only available in the hardback copy and people were saying oh I want to buy your book and then seeing the price and going oh my lord <laughs> I know I'm sorry um so yes yeah, so that's mine but there are lots of other places to go um good places to look um the long long trails usually a fairly good website they have some good stuff. Um, National Archives um, have a very, um, they have some very interesting information on the remounts. Imperial War Museum, of course. Um, I'm thinking of other places you could look. Um, well, on that, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.